<clears throat> well, good afternoon, brethren. Please open up your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This is something that I've been meditating on uh, recently, and we're going to take a look at a text that is often overlooked. It's often overshadowed by what comes before and what comes after. At least I might personally have not given it due attention. But before we, re- we read the text, let me just give you some background. Uh, we, this is what we're going to study is in the middle of a story that we are very familiar with, at least most of us. Jesus comes to a place outside of Sychar. And he speaks with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. He does something radical for his time and in his culture. She was a woman. Rabbis would not be talking to women. There are even some rabbis who taught against talking much with your own wife. So he talks to this woman, which is in and of itself a radical act. And not to mention that she is a Samaritan, who they were enemies of the Jews. And she is also a pariah, a social outcast because of her sin. So he talks to her. He offers her living water. He then supernaturally exposes her sin that she was living in fornication and she was an adulteress. He teaches her about true worship And then he presents himself as the Messiah in verse 26 of this chapter. Uh, Literally in the Greek, he says, I am the one speaking to you. He calls himself the I am. So having said all that, let's now read the text. We come to the next part of this story. Let's start with verse 27. I'm going to read all the way to verse 42 to get uh, the whole context. It says here, and at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men. Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed 
there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you have said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Envision for a moment, if you haven't already, what we've just read. Jesus is in the middle of a conversation with this woman. The disciples have gone to buy food, according to verse 8. They come back and they interrupt the conversation. They marvel that he's talking with a woman. She marvels, realizing who she's talking to. And she leaves. She excitedly and hurriedly leaves. She runs. Leaves her water jar there. Goes into the city and beckons people to come see this man who told her all she ever did. I think it's significant that she left her water pot or water jar. She she leaves it there, evidently because she was in a hurry, and this is a heavy jar. She couldn't take it with, with her as she's running. And I, I also think it's significant that she leaves it, because this, you know, water was a precious commodity or, or a, a necessary Thing, especially living in the wilderness, in the desert, and in those, in, in that region, it was life. And she shows that she cares more about the the true living water than her own sustenance, and she leaves it there. I think that is significant. I think that detail was placed there on purpose by God. And though she, so, so she runs into the city, she beckons people to come, much like the disciples uh, did in, in some of the disciples in John chapter 1. You remember Jesus tells some of them, come and see. And then they, in turn, tell others to come and see. Uh, Andrew tells his brother Peter, I found the Messiah, come, let, let's, let's see him. Philip tells Nathaniel, come and see the same language being used here. I think this is significant. Again, I think this is on purpose too. She is, if she has not already become a disciple, she is in the process of becoming a disciple. And in verse 30, I especially want you to envision this. Then they went out of the city and came to him. Literally in the Greek, uh, this verb uh, came is in the imperfect Tense. So they were coming to him. This is reflected in some newer uh, translations. They were coming to him. As a result of this woman's evangelistic efforts, there is a massive group of Samaritans that are making their way to Jesus at that moment. And that is the setting of the passage that I want us to focus on. This multitude of Samaritan half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentiles, is about to come and hear Jesus for themselves, they are about to not only hear him, they're about to believe on him for salvation and declare him to be, verse 42, the savior of the world. That is something that not even even the teacher of Israel in the previous chapter, Nicodemus, understood or even confessed. This is amazing. They, they are not even fully, you know, full Jews. And they are confessing him to be the savior of the world. So, Jesus and his disciples are on the verge of a, 
of witnessing a massive citywide awakening. A great harvest is about to take place. And as the people are making their way to Jesus, Jesus has a little chat with his disciples. They urge him to eat the food that they bought. And how does Jesus respond to them? In verse 32, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Oh, I already have food. And what is the response of the disciples? They question one another. They ask one another, has anyone bought? Did you, hey, you know, Peter tells Andrew, hey, did you buy some food secretly? You know, or one of the other disciples tells another, you know, where where is he getting this food from? And Jesus clarifies, he will clarify what he means in verse 34. But before going there, I just want to stop and just, (laughs) I want us to realize how astonishing this is. It's astonishing how how much Jesus was misunderstood, especially in the Gospel of John. John especially highlights this. In John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. They don't understand him. Jesus says in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Nicodemus does does not understand him. Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, offers her living water. She does not understand him. And so on and so forth throughout the whole book. People misinterpret his words, his works, his purpose, his person. Jesus Christ is the most misunderstood man in history. And here, his own disciples showcase their own dullness. Jesus often used earthly things to illustrate spiritual realities. He talked about natural birth. To illustrate a spiritual reality. He talked about bread. He talked about water. He talked about light. He talked about the way. Earthly things that illustrate spiritual truths. But here the disciples' minds can't go past the natural realm. They can't see what he's saying. They think he's just talking about food, but he clarifies in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish or accomplish his work. Jesus was not talking about earthly food. Now, let's think of food for a moment. What is food? We have, if, if not been thinking about food, we have been partaking of food. Uh, recently, or not too long ago, or in the last hour, what is food? We can say that food is that which God has sovereignly designed for us to partake of for our sustenance, for our nourishment, that which we need in order to survive, to thrive. And we, sh- we could also say that God has designed food uh, for food to typically be delightful to the palate. We typically eat that which we like to eat. It's something that is enjoyable. We typically eat food that is enjoyable. It's something that we can take delight in. And food, like everything else in creation, is an object lesson for us. Food was made by Christ 
for Christ. It was designed to point us to Christ. We see this so clearly in the Gospel of John. We have, for example, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am true food. My flesh is food. My blood is true drink. I am the food that has come down from heaven. In other words, He is a source of life itself. We see that all over John as well. He is the life. And His life is the light of men. And partaking of Christ, we have eternal life. And He says in John 5 that the Father has granted Him as the Son of Man to have life in Himself. Jesus is the true food. This natural earthly food is only... It only serves to illustrate the true spiritual food, which is Christ. And we need Him. We need Him not only for natural earthly life, but for eternal life. But you know, Jesus as the God-man, in His redemptive role, He also partook of food. He was also sustained and nourished and upheld. And His food was obeying the Father's will and accomplishing, finishing the work that he had been sent to do from heaven. This is what he lived off of. This is what fueled and motivated and energized and directed him. This is what he set his face like a flint to do with unwavering determination. This is what he delighted in doing. Above eating earthly food, he delighted in doing the will of his Father. And this language used in verse 32 echoes... Something we read in Deuteronomy. You can go there if you'd like. I will just be there real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. In the previous verse, it says that God tested Israel for 40 years. He led them into the wilderness to be tested. And verse 3, he says, So he humbled you allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know. Same language that we see in John 4. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Did you catch what this verse is saying? God humbles his people. He allowed you to hunger. Did you realize that God humbles us? You may, you may already know that, but you may need to be reminded of that. God humbles His people. God can test His people for a long time. He tested Israel for 40 years. He even allows us to hunger. He, he allows us to, to have hunger. Why does he do all this? Because this is a teaching tool. We are often in the Christian life brought to the end of ourselves. Why? To learn dependence. So that we may not rely on anything else. In those moments in which we are brought to our wit's end, those moments in which everything else fails, every other crutch that we try to use and we try to lean on, falls short and fails. 
We are left utterly destitute with nothing but Him. That is when we cry out, right? That is when we cry out to the Lord. Sometimes we can act like Israel and complain. But the true believer will end up crying out to God. And will repent of his complaints. And he will cry out to God, God, help me. God, you rescue me. God, you save me. Save me from this. And then what happens in the Christian life, brethren? What happens? We cry out to God and we are fed with manna that we did not know. We are fed with food that we did not know. God works in such a way, in a way in which eye has not seen nor ear heard. He works in a way that is exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. We see the miraculous and supernatural power of God in the midst of weakness, in the midst of brokenness. And the Lord's revealed desire for us is to bring us to that point of of dependence, of humiliation, of, Lord, you are the only one I have left. So that we we, we depend on him, but also he wants his his revealed desire is that, that we desire his word above all things, that we cling to his promises and not only, not only cling to His promises, but d- delight in His promises. That His promises and His Word becomes our food. He wants to get us to the point where, where we can say like Job, I have treasured the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. Sadly, that is a lesson that Israel did not learn. They did not take to heart what God was teaching here in Deuteronomy. What God reveals here in Deuteronomy. They didn't take it to heart before Deuteronomy was given and they didn't take it to heart afterward. Israel crosses the Red Sea. As we saw in the last message, they were baptized into Moses. Through the sea, under the cloud, the presence of God was there guiding them. But even, even before crossing the Red Sea, they were, they were already complaining. And they crossed the Red Sea, and afterward, they, they are led. You know, Isaiah 63 tells us that it was the Holy Spirit that was leading them, led them into the wilderness. They're led to the wilderness, and they complain and complain and complain and rebel over and over again. And they demonstrate, they evince that in their hearts they care more about food and drink than the words that are proceeding, that proceed from the mouth of God. Oh, but Jesus wasn't like that. Fast forward a thousand five hundred years after Israel, the true Israel comes on the scene. The true Israel passes through the waters of baptism. And then the glory spirit descends upon him and leads them into the wilderness for 40 days of testing. He's fasting. He is hungry. He is brought to utter dependence. But what does he do? He still obeys. And he quotes this very text, Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He is tempted to acquire food by through a means that it that is not the Father's will, but he, and he 
wants to do the Father's will. He delights in the Father's will and he rejects that temptation and he conquers. Jesus Christ truly lived by every word. Every word of God. He demonstrates throughout his life and ministry that he truly considered the Father's will his food. And I think it's interesting that of the four Gospels, the Gospel of John does not contain the account of the temptation in the wilderness. Nevertheless, we see Jesus Christ conquer temptation all throughout this Gospel, all throughout this book. Adam was, te- was tested in paradise and he failed. Israel was tested in the wilderness. They failed. Jesus does what Adam, what Israel could not do. And this text is one of several examples of this. In John chapter 4, in the beginning, we see that Jesus arrives at Jacob's well and he is wearied in verse 6. The Greek word wearied denotes an extreme condition, utter exhaustion. He is completely fatigued from his journey. He is there at the sixth hour, at the hottest time of the day. He is immensely thirsty. He's under the scorching hot sun and he is hungry, which is why his disciples went into the city to buy food. Jesus is being tested, just like in the wilderness temptation. But he demonstrates again that he cares more about the will of his father than than about being sustained by earthly material nourishment. He is so caught up in what the one who sent him wants him to do and has before him that he's not even he doesn't even want to think about food. And I think it's interesting here, too, that he does ask the Samaritan woman for water. He asks for her to get some water for her. And then he starts this conversation with her and then she runs off. And we don't even know if she ever got the water for him or not. If he was even able to drink the water. Regardless, we see that he clearly he clearly did not eat at the very least. He did not eat earthly food, but he was feasting on spiritual nourishment. Everything else was secondary to his mission. Doing the will of the Father. He was so caught up in the Father's will that he didn't care about anything else. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that. God has a ministry for you and you're just doing it. You don't even notice that you haven't eaten or drank anything. You're so focused on what God wants you to do. Well, that was Christ. That was Christ to the nth degree. To the nth power. But back to verse 34. Let's think of the Father's will for a moment. And Christ's work in more specific terms. What was the Father's will and Christ's mission? If we could summarize it in a word, redemption. To seek and save that which is lost. And everything else that entailed, his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation as well. We can include in that his intercession before the Father. That is the mission of Jesus Christ. That is what he came to do here on earth. And he continues carrying out that mission of redemption. 
And that mission was clearly outlined in the pages of the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus studied the Old Testament Scriptures. He meditated on the Old Testament Scriptures. He obeyed the Old Testament Scriptures. He fulfilled the Old Testament Scriptures by His life. We're told there what the Messiah was to do. The object and the purpose. The mission of the Messiah. And this is what Jesus was intentionally carrying out. Intentionally obeying. Jesus always did that which was pleasing to the Father. He says so himself in John chapter 8. So he was being led of the Word of God. He was also being led subjectively by the Father and by the Holy Spirit. He was being led. We see we have an example of this here in John 4. He is led of his Father to talk to this Samaritan woman. And he knows that this is his Father's will. He knows he had to pass through Samaria because he had a divine appointment. He is led to specific situations in which he furthers this plan of redemption. And this led to this massive salvation, as I mentioned, and as we saw. And he, he explains this mission that he has. Uh, and, and I think... He is explaining particularly what's, what's about to happen, verses 35 to 38. We can't, we don't have enough time to get into this in, in detail, but what Jesus basically is, explains to his disciples there is, well, he, he, he bids them look, behold, the, the great harvest that is about to take place. He tells them, behold, There's a harvest. You don't have to wait four months for the harvest. The fields are already white for harvest. Now you can imagine heads of grain in a field ready for plucking. That's probably what this multitude of Samaritans coming to Jesus and his disciples. That's probably what they look like in their tunics. Just a field ready for harvest as they're making their way to Jesus. This was to be a harvest of fruit for eternal life. Verse 36. This was a a harvest of genuine salvations. And it was a harvest that would lead to rejoicing. It would lead to joy. It would lead to people receiving eternal life. And this would result in joy, not only only for the people themselves, and not only for the disciples who would witness this, but also it would lead to joy for those who had sown. Those who had sown and those who were about to reap the harvest were to rejoice together. As Scripture tells us in Luke 15:7, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And there would be joy, joy in heaven in this episode here as well. Joy in heaven and on earth. The disciples were about to reap a harvest that they had not labored for. They had not sown. Who had sown? Well, when Jesus said that others had sown, I believe he's referring, for one, Moses. The Samaritans believed in Moses. They believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected the other books of the Old Testament. Moses certainly had sown. Every Old Testament prophet that had ever spoken a word to Samaria, to Samaria I believe they had sown as well. Even even if they were 
They ended up being rejected in the end by the Samaritans. God's word does not return void. They had sown as well. Jesus himself had sown. He had talked to the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman herself had sown. She had called people. She had beckoned people to come to Jesus. And soon all of them would be rejoicing together. And again, in heaven and on earth, they would be rejoicing over this great harvest. When Jesus mentions this harvest, again, I think he is referring to specifically in this context, what is about to take place. I believe there is a broad application to what he says about the harvest here, but there is a specific application of that as well. This specific particular situation. And when Jesus says in verse 36, he he says, And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. I, uh, I see in here language that is reminiscent of what God says in Amos chapter 9. There in Amos 9, God foretells of the fact that he will raise up the fallen tabernacle of David. And then the Gentiles would come and worship him. And he speaks there of glorious days of an incredibly abundant harvest. He says in Amos 9.13, The plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. We have a picture there of the land being so miraculously fertile that sowing and reaping overlap. As people are reaping, others are sowing at the same time. As some are planting grapes, others are are treading the grapes at the same time. This is an Edenic picture. Paradise. Even greater than the original Eden. And what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 4, he's saying this harvest is happening now. At the very least, it's about to take place now. There is, there is a harvest here. To use his own words in, in verse 23 of this chapter, he says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. The Samaritan woman had asked about what is the right place of worship? Where is the geographical location, the sacred space in which we are to go to to worship? Jesus says, no, I am the place of worship. And when you are united to myself, you are a true worshiper. It's not about just going to one place. True worship is wherever the true believers, the true worshipers gather. That is the place of worship. What is the true, what, what is the true place of worship? As I said, wherever the believers gather. What is the, the time of worship? Whenever the believers gather. And this harvest was, was happening now. It had begun. Jesus had inaugurated this end times. This escalated end times, new creational harvest. He was already producing worshipers and he was about to produce a lot of worshipers here in this episode. Jesus has come and he is raising the dead, not only physically, but spiritually. He shines his light on people. He gives life to people. And the disciples here in John 4, they get a small taste of this new creational kingdom that Christ was ushering in 
Many Samaritans are saved. They believe. They had believed a little bit because of the testimony of this woman, but then they really believe when they hear Christ. And this episode in and of itself was a small picture of what would happen later after the Holy Spirit was poured out. In Acts chapter 8, we see Philip goes into Samaria and multitudes are saved. And what does it say in Acts 8.8? I love that verse. There was great joy. Harvest, a harvest that leads to joy. That would happen in a greater measure later on. So, having said all this, what, what is what is the purpose of, of me sharing all this with you? What's the point? At least, what's my point here? Well, I just want to let you know it's not to beat you over the head. Are you doing the will of the Father? Why not? Why are you not doing the will of the Father? First and foremost, I would just like you to behold the Son. Can we not just do that? Behold the glory of Jesus Christ, how he loved the Father's will, how it was his food, how he obeyed perfectly. Can we behold his astounding and amazing love for sinners, his compassion for women like the Samaritan woman, an outcast, one of the worst in her town? He loved her. Can we behold the glory of the mission of Jesus Christ? And how he esteemed carrying out this mission above, above food. Let's behold also this end time harvest that Jesus Christ has initiated. Brethren, the harvest is here. The harvest is already here and it's happening. The harvest of joy is here. What must we do? In order to see it, well, we, we have to repent of our dullness like the disciples. We can be so distracted by earthly things. We, ha- we can be so distracted by the material. Where's my food going to come from? How am I going to get dressed tomorrow? What am I going to wear? What am I going to have? The affairs of this life, the anxieties, the cares of this life can blind us to see this glorious end time harvest that this obedient, glorious Christ has ushered in. You only need a little coin to blind your eye from seeing the sun. You only need a little problem to blind you from seeing what is right in front of you. Brethren, the harvest has come. And I, like I said, I'm not going to beat you over that. You, you need to go out and evangelize. If not, you're sitting. I'm not going to guilt trip you. You need to go out on Saturdays with us. I, I don't believe in guilt tripping people to, to into evangelism. And not everybody's called to do what I'm doing. But don't look at it as we have to do this. Like a drudgery, I have to do this. We get to partake in the mission of Jesus Christ. We get to partake of the end time harvest. We get to partake of the joy that Jesus Christ has for us and for others. Jesus endured the cross. Why? Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him. 
The joy of receiving many sons to glory. The joy of having his people with him, reflecting him, being like him, being made like unto the image of Christ. Oh, brethren, it's not that we have to do this, it's that we get to do this. We get to partake of joy. We get to unite and join with Jesus Christ in his mission. That is such a glorious thing. That is, that is what life is about. That's why you're living right now. You're living here. God has placed you on earth. He hasn't taken you to heaven yet. Because your purpose is to join with Jesus Christ in this mission, the Great Commission. Look around you. Look at the opportunities that you have. Look at the Samaritans around you. The outcasts, the rejected ones. Look look at all the opportunities you have. Preach to people the gospel. Share with people the gospel. At the workplace. At in your neighborhood. Wherever you are, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tell people of Jesus. Announce the good news that the Messiah has come. That He is the I Am. That He is the Savior of the world. Announce to people the gospel. That's what you're here for. Announce the gospel. For sinners' joy and for yours. Let's pray.